I've often said that what makes America exceptional isn't our wealth or size or skyscrapers or military power. It's the fact that America's the only nation in human history that's made up of people of every race, religion, and culture from every corner of the globe, and that we've had faith in our democracy, our common creed, to blend this hodgepodge of humanity into one people. Nothing symbolizes this truth more than our music, the way that generations of Americans stitch together every imaginable tradition, from African rhythms to Irish ballads, to create something entirely new, whether it was jazz or the blues, country or rock and roll. At the same time, our music's often been a mirror into the fault lines of American society. And what gets played and who gets paid in the songs of those who've been relegated to the margins of society and in the songs of those insisting that their truths finally be heard. It's got a power to reshape social attitudes and make connections between people when mere words, even in good speeches, aren't enough. Further on up the road. Someone's gonna hurt you like it. Wait, we gotta get on right key. I got I gotta get to your Let me hear where you're at. Further on up the road. 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 You've been laughing pretty, baby. Someday you're gonna be crying Further on up the road <laughs> I forget that last line Huh Sounds alright though <laughs> So, music You ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready man so you're in Hawaii, you're a teenager during what, the 70s? 70s. You're a teenager 70s. in the 70s. What is the music that is catching your ear as you are becoming interested in music, which is how it gets around 14 or? First album I bought with my own money, talking book, Stevie Wonder. I would sit with a, a banged up, little old turntable, kind of plasticky looking turntable. Sure, yeah. I got myself some earphones so my grandparents would not complain. Yep. And I would sing along to every Stevie Wonder song for hours. I feel like this is the Hawaii was a place where you had Top 40. Casey Kasem was on. Every week at this time on American Top 40. My name is Casey Kasem, and the countdown continues and doesn't stop until we get to the number one. You know, I'm, I'm 10, 11 years old. You're listening to the radio, and there's songs that I end up just getting really attached to. You know, you got a 10 year old saying, Let's get it on. <laughs> We're all sensitive people. people with so much to give. And you're thinking, you know, and, and you know, your grandmother would hear it. What, 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 what are you singing? 
There's another song of Billy Paul. Me and Mrs. Jones. You just... Me and... I don't know. Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones. We both know that it's wrong, but it's much too strong. I mean, you know, you're like 11, 11 years old. Um, Joni Mitchell came out with Court and Spark. Great record. I was like... 11, 12 Beautiful years record. old. Yeah. Help me, I think I'm falling in love with you. That's, that's pretty. I don't know what that feeling is, but it seems fascinating. <laughs> so the interesting thing was that you had top 40, and you had these crossover artists like Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, but then there was other kind of music that was much more, I won't say segregated, but uh, identifiable as black or white. Like I loved Ohio Players or Parliament. Uh, that was not something you might find in some of my white friends' music library. Uh, and some of them might be into heavy metal. And if I got in a car with them and they, they turned that thing all the way up, yeah, that could be a little painful for me. So even though Top 40, it was integrated at least in Hawaii, underneath you could still see these distinctions uh, between whose music was whose. When you decided you were gonna be a rock and roll star <laughs> at the age yeah. of 15 or around there, it made sense. If you're going to be a rock and roll star, you're going to play the guitar. Well, uh, guitars were cheap. So that helped. My first guitar was $18. Cheaper than a piano. Much cheaper than a piano, much cheaper than the drums. Is that right? Drum set was more expensive. Yeah. So I could actually work a job, which I did. I painted house, tarred roof, did some lawn work, saved up $18, bought a cheap guitar at the Western Auto Store in Freehold, New Jersey. So my cousin Frankie had, was starting to play the guitar a little bit, and he taught me a few chords and sent me home with a folk music book that had all the chords in it. So for about a month or so, I was strumming my way through folk music classics, you know, green sleeves and uh, if I had a hammer. And shortly after that, somebody taught me to play honky-tonk. Honky tonk. That's right. Then I started to learn some Beatles stuff. I learned Twist and Shout. You know, shake it up, baby. And, you know, I, I just started getting up in my room and closing the door and just 
practicing. Screaming my head off and strumming the guitar and Did standing your folks in say front anything? of the mirror. It's like, what, what, are, what are you yelling about? Keep it down. You know, the usual Keep stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it down, man. Keep it down. <laughs> and my mother was supportive. My father was kind of like, yeah, what, what's what's going on now? I don't know. What's this kid up to now? I don't understand <laughs> it, you know? Then uh, I grew my hair, and he really didn't understand that. And, and but it, it, it was the course. Thousands, if not millions, of other kids were taking that exact same course at that exact same moment. So the miracle is, there's a million kids who pick up a guitar. You know, a certain amount of those kids learn how to strum a few chords. A certain amount of those kids learn how to play play a few songs. A few of those get in a little local band. This first song that I would like to do. A few of those get in a little local band that makes a demo. Song about growing up. And then a few of those get in a little local band that makes a record. Well, I stood stone-like at midnight. And then a few of those Get in a little local band that makes a record and it sells a few copies. And then even fewer of those make a record, uh, get in a band where they have a short career. And fewer of those get in and they have a band where like they make a, somewhat of a regular living. And then one night I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and I was standing between George Harrison and Mick Jagger singing something. I said, okay, one of these <laughs> is standing tonight between George Harrison and Mick Jagger. <laughs> it was both simple and complicated for me. One, it was the only thing I deeply desired to do. Two, it was an essential element in building an identity as a man, as an American, as a human being, when I hold a guitar, I don't feel like I'm holding anything. It's just a part of my body. You know, it's just another appendage. That's how it feels, you know? When I strap it on, it's, it's like, that feels like my natural state. And I also built a philosophy about performing. I'm gonna give my best to bring out the best in you. And I'm going to send you home with a sense of community and a set of values that may sustain you past the concert. You know, I always make a joke, I wanna come out on stage and change your life, except it's not really a joke. That is my purpose at night. It's your ministry. Yeah. With the ministry of rock and roll! I took my job seriously. I believed that I am involved in a ridiculous but noble profession right. <laughs> at the same time. And, and that I know music had an impact on me that changed my life 
changed who I thought I was, changed who I became. I know that this is possible. I have an opportunity. God has given me the opportunity to come out at night and to have that kind of impact on some individual crowd member. If I can do that, that's worth being on the planet for. You know, that, that's, that's something worth living for. I was a creature of Top 40. First music I heard was my mother playing doo-wop, rhythm and blues on the radio in the morning as I was eight or nine years old as a child. I wonder, wonder who, who, who wrote the book out So, and then you had to have, you know, yeah, you had the other hits of the day, which were Beatle hits and Rolling Stone hits and... Uh, uh, and where does where does Dylan uh, fit in in terms of how that influences you? Bob was funny, no? Because he, he's he pulling in, but he had hits, but he's pulling from some different. You know, he's 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 pulling from Woody Guthrie. Yeah, he's pulling from. I didn't I didn't know or learn anything about that till I was thirty. I never listened to Bob's early acoustic records. I only listened to Highway sixty one, Subterranean Homesick Blues. I played his electric material, and it wasn't until I got little in my late 20s and 30s that I went back and heard his acoustic music and went, then went back and heard Woody Guthrie. So I came to those forms late. Oh, late. Came to country music in my late 20s and 30s looking for other solutions than rock music provided. Rock music was a great music of, uh, there was some class anger in it and that agreed with me. Uh, then there was the beautiful romanticism and melodies a lot of energy, but as you were getting older, it didn't address your ad adult problems. Yeah. So I went to country music. Country music was great, incredible singing and playing, but it was rather fatalistic, mm -hmm. you know? So I said, well, who's trying to play? Who? Where's a, a music of hope? And when you went to Woody Guthrie, Woody was doing, uh, and, and Bob, you know, they were spelling out the hard world that you lived in, but they were also providing you somehow with some transcendence and some and some actionable solution to societal and your own personal problems. You could be active. That drew my attention because I was now a relatively big rock star. I was interested in maintaining ties to my community. I was interested in giving voice to both myself and uh, folks of my community. I was also interested 
in being active to a certain degree, taking some of what I was earning, putting it back into the community. And that was, it was 1980. I started to play This Land Is Your Land. That and through Born in the USA was when what we were going to do both as a, the band a bit as a social unit and as an entertainment unit and how, how we were going to blend all these things together. Once I rode that ribbon highway, I saw above me the endless sky. I saw below me a golden valley where this land was made for you and me. And that was where I found my full satisfaction, and that's how I put all the pieces together. Through the sparkling sands of the diamond deserts, and all around me, a voice was sounding. It cried, This land was made. So I like, Bruce, how, how you're talking about blending it all together, putting the pieces together, because, you know, that's been the essence of all great American musicians. And, and you know, that's one of the reasons why Michelle and I thought it was so important uh, during the course of our presidency, at a moment when the country felt so divided, uh, to really put an emphasis on these music series that we did. We would have a Motown night, but also a country music night. Fiesta Latina, uh, or a Broadway tunes night, or a gospel night. Young girls, they do get weary Wearing the same old dress. Part of what we would do is draw musicians from various traditions to be a part of something that wasn't traditionally something they played. You know, you'd have the country music singer uh, in a gospel concert, or we'd have an R&B singer uh, singing rock to, to emphasize and underscore how all these traditions, in fact, do blend together once you start uh, breaking down some of these silos and categories that... Uh, we carry around in our heads. Now, Bruce says, you and Patty will testify some of the best music 
to happen in the White House happened off camera uh, during some of our parties. Uh, that was some fun. Well, we were at a few, and, and all I can say is they were historical. And <laughs> and you're not going to see another one like that they, in the they, White House for a long they, time. <laughs> they will not. Uh, we we had we we had some some amazing moments. All right, let's let, let's let's set the stage here. I am in my last month of my presidency. There was something I specifically wanted to do for the staff that had been with me for the entire journey and had gone through a, a, a really remarkable but grueling process. So we get this idea. Maybe we can just do something small and quiet and private, 100 people, and maybe Bruce will be willing to come in and, and just do a quick concert. And uh, you show up, and we got like about 10 guitars sitting over there <laughs> on a rack, and you got the piano. And Patty says to me, yeah, I don't really know what he's going to do. Because you hadn't really done, never done it before. the whole thing for her either. I'd never done it for anybody. I only did it for a few hours in this room yes. before I so, came down. So, so your wife shows up with you. No and she clue. says, I don't really know what it is, but there's <laughs> something going on here. You know, I got the invitation and I said, well, I'm not, not going to put the band together and make a big noise. And, you know, so I said, well, I'll go down and play some acoustic songs. So I said, well, what could I do to make that a little different? So, well, I'll read from my book and I'll play a few songs. So I came in here. And I started to read from the book and play a few songs. And I realized reading from the book was a little stilted because uh, the way you write for your book is not the way you speak. Yeah, you know? written, it, the written word is different. And so I started to paraphrase all my writings in the book as if I was just telling a story. And I literally spent a couple hours for two days in this studio and we came down. And you essentially ended up doing, what would you say? Maybe 90 minutes of the show. Maybe 90 minutes the Broadway that became of, of the Broadway yeah. show. Chance to make it good somehow. Hey, what else can we do now? Except roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair. Well, the night's busted open these two lanes. will take us anywhere. We got one last chance to make it real for trading these wings on some wheels. I get up on stage afterwards and I say, dude, you 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 gotta you gotta do that for some some other people. You, I, I, I can't be this greedy where we're the only ones who get to hear this. I have to give you credit because the, the two of you were sitting right in front of me and I was thrilled to be there, honored to be playing for you. And you got up afterwards and you came, and you were the first one on stage and you just kind of came over and leaned down into my ear and you said, hey, look, I, I know you did this just for us, but this ought to be a show somewhere or you get, something. You got, you, know? you got to share this. <laughs> and, and then one thing led to another. We said, well, I need a really small space because I need complete quiet for this to work out as we had in the East Room. 
And we went out and we found a little, that tiny theater, 900 seats on, on Broadway. And uh, you ended up having to work a, a real job. Being there for five nights a week at two hours and 20 minutes, a sh 22 hours and 20 minutes a night. One of the best times of my life. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. here somewhere when I figure it out I'll let you know all I know is that it's on me shake this world off my shoulders come on baby have a laugh on me Are you a shower singer? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I sing in the shower. I sing outside of the shower. I, I am unembarrassed about singing. Um, my daughters and my wife sometimes roll their eyes. <laughs> I have been known to have been scolded by my staff um, for... Doing some air guitar stuff sorry, uh, on Air Force I'm One. I'm sorry, I missed that. And they're worried that the journalists are saying, I'm, Joe here is probably somebody who's kind of warned me off that. <laughs> well, the, the, re the reason I ask is because hey, you did a pretty damn nice version of uh, Al Green. Let's stay together. Am I right? That, is that the one? Let, listen, here, here's the story. We're in the Apollo, the legendary Apollo Theater in Harlem. Right. It's a fundraiser for me. Mm -hmm. At which Al Green has performed. But as is always true, I don't get to see the act because they've got me somewhere else. I'm getting there late after the performance. Right. So I'm sitting backstage with Valerie Jarrett. And I'm like, man, I missed Al Green. And so I start singing backstage. I'm so in love with you. A couple of the sound guys, smart Alex, say, Mr. President, why don't you sing that on stage? Yeah, baby. <laughs> and I said, what, you don't think I will do that? <laughs> and Valerie says, don't do that. Because <laughs> she's, she's the surrogate for Michelle in these circumstances. I got you. And I probably wouldn't have done it were it not for the fact that I think I was on my fifth event that day mm -hmm. and I was a little loopy. Good for you. I was a little tired. <laughs> yeah. And Al Green was still there. He was sitting up in the low seats. Oh, man. So I got out and I said, oh, Al was here. I'm sorry I missed him. <laughs> and then I looked to see if the stage guys were watching. And I burst out into song. I'm so in love with you. Wow. 
those guys didn't think I would do it. What I really want to ask you about, of course, is Amazing Grace, because that really, that shook the whole country. And how on that day did you come to decide to, uh, to sing that song? That's an interesting story. I, I, uh, first of all, that day was a magical day that began in grief, or, or we had anticipated would begin in grief. But it turns out that's also the day in which the Supreme Court hands down the ruling saying that it is unconstitutional to not let lesbians and gays and the LGBTQ right. uh, partners get married. So that's a joyful moment. But we are traveling down to Charleston after this young, this young white man who's been filled with hatred right. guns down a Bible study class that had welcomed him in. Jesus. And uh, I actually had met the pastor, Reverend Pickney, in previous visits to South Carolina. And he had two little girls that were a little younger than Malia and Sasha. And, um, and this was coming on the heels of just, it seemed like every three months, some mass shooting. Mm-hmm. And I would go after each of these mass shootings. And sometimes Michelle would go with me, although it was at a certain point it became difficult for Michelle to just do this. And I would spend a couple of hours with a family mm-hmm. who just had their child or their father or their brother or their son gunned down senselessly for no reason. And I had, I had thought that after Newtown, when 20 six-year-olds have been gunned down in this fashion by a deranged young man who had basically an arsenal in his house. Uh, I thought, all right, well, Congress is going to do something about this. And the most angry, I think, and disappointed, the closest I ever came to just losing hope about this country was probably after efforts for modest gun safety laws were defeated, weren't even really, never even really got called up in the Senate. After 20 children had been slaughtered like that. The only time I saw a Secret Service person cry while I was speaking was at Newtown. So, so it happens again, and, and I say, I, as soon as it happens, in addition to making a statement at, from the White House, I say, you know, I'll want to go to the funeral, but I don't want to speak. I don't have anything left to say. I feel like I've used up all my words. Mm-hmm. Nothing I've been able to say, whether making practical, rational arguments, emotional arguments. I've I've shown anger in speaking about this. I've shown sorrow 
and nothing seems to have any impact. I'm out of words. And of course, they ask that I speak. And I concluded, all right, I, this is part of the job. I, I, I don't have the luxury, but I was stuck. I had nothing to say. It just so happened at the time, I was corresponding with a friend, Marilyn Robinson, who's mm-hmm. a, a, a wonderful author, wrote Gilead, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and one theme that she writes about is grace. And we had been writing about grace and, and just talking about the, the, notion of, the notion of grace as a recognition that we are fundamentally flawed and weak and confused so we don't deserve grace, but we get it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And just as, just as she had been writing this, or we've been writing to each other about this, the families of the, the slain in Charleston during the shooter's arrange, uh, arraignment right. say, we forgive you. Right. And it didn't click right away, I'm still thinking, I don't know what to say. My head speechwriter, Cody Keenan, I tell him, dude, I, you know, I don't know what's going to work here. He gives me something that is not, you know, it just doesn't meet the moment. Mm-hmm. Be, not because it's his fault. It's because he's gone through the same thing I have. Mm-hmm. We, we've done this too many times. We're, we're, we're out of So I'm sitting there about 10 o'clock at night. And I'm just stuck. And there's, I don't know what it is that I'm going to say tomorrow. This is going to be the next day. I think Marilyn's letter is just sort of sitting on a desk, and I, I just, I see the word grace, and somehow I start singing to myself. Amazing grace, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought about the families who said, "I, we forgive you," and I thought. Um, well, maybe I can work with that. Suddenly I write the speech in 10 minutes, maybe 20. (laughs) I mean, the the whole, I mean, the eulogy. I I just, it all just pours out of me. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. And you can see me pause for a moment. Amazing grace. How sweet. It's interesting. It, it, it was a moment where you just say, will words be enough? And it would have been. But I, I, I thought the music, the song, the, the leap of faith involved, particularly because... I knew that it wouldn't sound like a professional singer. It, w- it would sound like somebody, just one other guy, 
in the choir that in some fashion that's the thing that would be the grace note that that would be the thing that drew people out Flamenta Picnic found that grace. Cynthia Hurd found that grace. Susie Jackson found that grace. Ethel Lance found that grace. The Payne Middleton Doctor found that grace. Taiwanza Sanders found that grace. Daniel L. Simmons Sr. found that grace. Sharonda Coleman Singleton found that grace. Myra Thompson found that grace. Through the example of their lives, they've now passed it on to us. May we find ourselves worthy of that precious and extraordinary gift. As long as our lives endure, may grace now lead them home. May God continue to shed his grace on the United States of America. And part of the reason I think that it somehow met the moment was because not only is it a beautiful song, but it also captures this unifying element in America represented in its music. You've got an old world English hymn that has been used by everybody in every church all across this country white churches, black churches, the black gospel tradition has transformed it. Uh, and it spoke then to the fact that underneath even a tragedy like this, there's something that is there for all of us, something that we share. Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lipka and Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwen Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. Daniel Eck. Don Ostroff and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music supervision by Search Party Music. 
From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob LeBret, Rob DeMartin, and Barbara Carr. We also want to thank Adrian Gerard, Marilyn Laverty, Tracy Nurse, Greg Lynn, and Betsy Whitney. And a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration. And to Evan, Jess, and Sam Springsteen. From the District of Columbia, thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith, Katie Hill, Eric Schultz, Caroline Adler Morales, Marone Heli Mescal, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama. This is Renegades, born in the USA.